You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Romans chapter 4, the faith of Abraham. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Now, is this blessing only for the Jews or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we've been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised? Or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. a pleasure and a privilege for me to preach from the book of Romans, but especially Romans chapter 4 this morning. And um, the reason it's such a privilege is that Romans 4, whilst uh, difficult and hard to understand at times, holds great treasures for us. Uh, Yesterday I had the the great joy of being out at Falls Creek and doing some cycling and I rode up Falls Creek and we're at one of the tallest points in Uh, Victoria and it was beautiful and gorgeous and glorious and yet it holds absolutely nothing to the glory that is in Romans chapter 4 that God reveals to us here. Um, I was thinking on the way here what kind of movies people watch 
especially in your houses and homes. See, for us, we watch two kinds of movies in our, in our house. Uh, when Sarah's not at home, uh, we watch sports movies. And uh, when Sarah is at home, we watch, we watch romantic comedies. Um, and so we watch, well, I watch uh, Remember the Titans and uh, great films like Cool Runnings, although we do love that together. And then uh, we also watch like 10 Things I Hate About You and About Time and great films. But there was uh, a, a couple of weeks back, I was watching this movie called Any Given Sunday. If you're a sports fan, you might have watched it. It's a film from the 90s, 1999, starring Al Pacino and Jamie Foxx, and it is the sports movie standard. It is a classic. It tells the story of a washed-up NFL coach, Tony D'Amato, played by Al Pacino, in the afterglow of a successful career, on the verge of being sacked and his life's uh, goal being over, of being an NFL coach. And uh, in successive matches, he finds that his two top quarterbacks have been injured and they're out for the entire season, and he has to bring in this third stringer who's never played a game in his entire life, Willie Beeman, played by Jamie Foxx. And they make this surprising march towards the playoffs. And at the penultimate game of the season, when everything's going to gear up, whether they make the playoffs, whether they go on to do anything successful, uh, Al Pacino gives this speech, which I think illustrates the struggle of Romans 4 for us this morning. This is what uh, Al Pacino, or Tony D'Amato, the guy he's playing, says. He's sharing his successes and his losses before his team, before they go out. And as he shares it, he says these lines, that you find out that life is this game of inches, and so is football. Because in either game, life or football, the margin for error is so small. One half a step too late or too early, and you don't quite make it. One half a second too slow or too fast, and you don't quite catch it. But the inches that we need are everywhere around us. They're in every break of the game, every minute and every second. And on this team, we fight for that inch. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that inch. We claw with our fingernails for that inch. Because we know that when we add up all of those inches, that's going to make the difference between winning and losing and between living and dying. I'll tell you this, in any fight, it's the guy who's willing to die who is going to win that inch. The reason that this resonates with us so much is that this taps into, this kind of scene, this kind of quote, taps into a deep cultural reservoir of storytelling that we hear all around us all the time. In our movies, in our songs, in our education, even in our families. That if you just work hard, if you put your blood, sweat and tears into it, if you tear yourself to pieces for that inch, then you can earn anything that you need. That you can be who you need to be and set yourself free. But the thing is, it's not only in our movies, it's not only in our music, it's in our religion everywhere. You don't have to look very far to find people working hard, practicing their religion, tearing themselves to pieces in order that they may be made right with God. You only have to consider the fact that in churches, mosques and temples all around the world, currently, right now, that's what's being taught. My uh, Buddhist friends... I've signed up to the Eightfold Path of Enlightenment. My Hindu friends have the doctrine of karma, that what you do now has eternal consequences. My, Islam, my Islamic brothers, they have the five, the, the five pillars of Islam that they must do to be made right with God. And the Jews, they have the law of Moses. And you work and you work and you work and you tear yourself to pieces so that you might fulfill these standards, these requirements in order that you may, may be made right with God. And into this deep 
cultural story that is being told not only in our music and our movies, but in our churches, temple and mosque. Jesus steps into and starts telling a counter story. One of my favourite stories about C.S. Lewis, who you might know as the guy who wrote Narnia, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Well, he was a student and a teacher at Oxford University. And uh, when he was there, they were having a discussion in a dorm room about um, the world religions. What stands out from each religion? What makes them unique? And they eventually got to Christianity and trying to work out what makes Christianity unique. What is the sole thing that differentiates it from uh, Islam or Buddhism or being a Hindu or being a Jew? And they sat there and they sort of tried to go through what they could think of. Well, is it the moral and ethical system that Christianity has? Well, not really, because other religions have similar things like love your brother as yourself and some of the other things that Jesus has to say. Is it the incarnation of God, that God has taken on flesh and become a man, a human? Well, in other religions, God sometimes become humans. There's stories be told. Is it the resurrection? Well, in other religions, again, like gods who were dead become alive again. It's not a new story in some ways. And so into this walks a Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, and he, in a typical C.S. Lewis fashion, uh, says, lads, what's the, what's the ruckus about? What's the rumble about? And they explain the conundrum that they're having, trying to work out what is the unique thing that Christianity has uh, in, to offer in its religion, and he says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned grace. Whilst we live in a world that, cre- that preaches do, 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 we have a Saviour who preaches done. Instead of tearing ourselves to pieces for that inch, we don't present ourselves to God saying we've done all this stuff, that we've created all these things, that we've done all these actions. No, we, don't. we trust Jesus' actions and we trust His life and what He has done, not what we have done. This is called justification by faith. And this is what Romans 4 teaches. Justification is a legal term. To justify someone is to declare them innocent and right. It's to give them a standing in a law court saying that you have been given the status of innocent. And Martin Luther had this to say about justification by faith. This doctrine is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets and nourishes, it builds and preserves and defends the church of God and without it the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Do you know why the church cannot exist for one hour? It's because without this there is no church. This is not only our thing that unites us and unifies us, it is the very thing that gives us life. Jono read out for us last week from Romans 3 some beautiful passages Like in verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, made right freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And in 27 and 28 it says, Where then is our boasting? It is excluded. And on what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. The great hope of the church, the life of the church, the blood of the church is not our actions or what we're called to do, but what Jesus has done. That is what unifies us and gives us life. So friends, I'm going to pray for us in a moment. And I want to pray something specific because I am almost certain that if you've set foot in a church before, that you will have heard many, many, hopefully many times, that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And it's one thing for us to know this intellectually and to understand that we're saved by grace through faith, but it's another thing for it to be applied to our hearts and for us to live lives that have been set free, not only by Jesus, but of doing things to earn God's favor. My prayer is that as we 
read through Romans 4 that not only we gain a deeper understanding in our heads of what it means to be saved by grace, to be justified by faith, that we have hearts that are different because we know deeply and richly that Jesus has set us free. So let me pray for us now. Father, I just want to pray for our church and our community. It's so easy to relate to you as someone who needs to earn your favor. That if I work hard and if I fight and fight and fight, that we will be made right with you. And we know that we're saved by grace through faith. We hear it week in, week out. We read it in the scriptures and we feel it through the Spirit. But I pray, Father, that today it not only becomes a reality in our heads but in our hearts. That we're able to rest knowing that our actions and our behaviors do not earn the favor of God. But trusting in Jesus does. So let us sit and rest and trust Him this morning. We pray this in the name of the Son and to the glory of the Father. Amen. So let's get into Romans. First verse says, What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 3, Paul introduces his theological idea of justification by faith. And now he brings out the heavyweights. He brings out Abraham, and in a moment he's going to bring out David to be witnesses that he brings to the stand in order to show that justification by faith has always been the plan and has always been how God has saved his people. But for, but for Jews, for Israel, Abraham was a Jew par excellence. He was the model Jewish citizen. He was the great hope. Everyone wanted to be like Abraham. In the same way that in the 90s, everyone wanted to be like Michael Jordan, everyone wanted to be like Abraham. And so we can see this in a couple of Jewish books that have been written, particularly between the time of, of Abraham and Jesus, that were written about Abraham's behavior. So, for instance, in the Mishnah, in the third division, it says that we find that Abraham, our father, performed the whole law before it was given. For it is written that because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And in the book of Jubilee, it says that Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. And it goes even further in the prayer of Manassas. It says, Thou therefore, O Lord, that art the good of the righteous, has not appointed repentance unto the righteous or unto Abraham. There are some astonishing claims being made about Abraham. Not only are they saying that Abraham performed the whole law before the law was even given, that he had performed every single iota of the law. Not only is it saying that Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds before the law, that he, all of his life he had never sinned, it goes on to say in the prayer of Manassas that Abraham has absolutely no need of repentance. Abraham is essentially perfect. He has been justified by his works. He has been a good example of what it means to be justified by actions. And yet we pick up the Bible and we just know that that's not true because we read in Genesis how Abraham was so scared of being killed because his wife was so beautiful that he pretended that she was his sister and gave her over to Pharaoh hoping that he would let him live. That's not the example of a righteous man who's perfect in all of his deeds and has no need of repentance. I guarantee that if Sarah and I were ever traveling overseas and I pretended that she was my sister so I didn't get killed, and she somehow ended up in the king's court because of it, right? I'd never hear the end of it, right? right? I would have much need of repentance. And so the whole idea that Abraham has been justified by his works is just ludicrous. And that's why Paul says in verse 3, Abraham, uh, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
It was not his actions that saved Abraham, it was his faith. He trusted God, he believed God. And this is harking back, arcing back to uh, Genesis 12, 14 and 15. See, in Genesis 12, um, God makes these incredible promises to the man we know as Abraham now, but was called Abram. Abram means um, righteous father. It's a good father. Abraham means father of many nations, um, father of many people. Right? So God calls Abram out of his land, and he makes all these promises with him. He makes a promise that his children will be as numerous as the stars. He makes a promise that he will be a great nation that will bless others and that will possess incredible land. And yet we find in Genesis 14, Abraham has uh, started to weary of trusting in God. So so Genesis 14, um, Abraham's brother Lot has been captured um, somehow. Um, and Abraham and his men take th- 318 men. So Abraham is basically a Spartan at this point, and he fights off four kings and rescues his brother Lot, and he takes him back. And then in Genesis 15, we find that Abraham is despondent. He's had this great victory in battle, and yet he is on his knees before the Lord. So Genesis 15 says this, After this, after the rescue of Lot, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will become my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son, who is your own flesh, and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Here's the key verse. 6. Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Before the law, before the circumcision, before his works, Abraham trusted God was counted to him as righteousness. From the very beginning of the scriptures, God's people have always been saved by faith, not by works. Abraham saved by works, not his faith. And Paul goes on to say in Romans 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5, says, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. This is just logic. There are two ways to credit someone's account. You can either credit them a salary that they have earned for, that they have worked for, that they have torn themselves to pieces for uh, sometimes, or you can give them a gift. You can credit their account with a gift, something that they have not earned but you're giving them out um, out of your own bank account. And we know, Paul says again and again and again, faith is a gift. It's something that God has gifted to us. It's not something that we've worked or earned for or deserved. You know, my, my birthday is, is coming up in uh, 24 days. It's the 4th of April. I'll uh, give you 10, 20 seconds to grab your diaries and write that down. Um, seriously. No, no, no. So my, my birthday's coming up. And just imagine... Sarah comes to me a couple of weeks before my birthday and she says, babe, I've got the most incredible present. It is going to blow your mind. Um, There's this book that you've been waiting for. It's just going to be incredible and I've got you some cycling gear so you can go enjoy that. Uh, But the the trick is that you're going to need to work pretty hard to get the gift. You're going to need to do all the dishes and mow the lawn and get on the roof and uh, and grab all the the leaves out of the gutter. Like That's not a gift. That's a salary. I've earned my own gift. Paul's just saying, it's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't don't work for it. It's something that God gives to you. And it's not even the most outrageous thing that Paul says in the statement. See, Paul's out there throwing theological hand grenades to the Jewish church that he's writing to. Because he's not only saying, Don't work for the faith that has been gifted for you. He's saying that God justifies the wicked. 
saying, don't work for it, trust Jesus. God justifies the wicked, trust Jesus. And the Jews would have gone, but God's, God's a just judge. He makes good judgments. Just judge don't leave the wicked to go free. The just judge punishes the wicked. They condemn the wicked. They stand against the wicked. How can God condemn or how can God justify the wicked? How can God justify the ungodly? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The whole point of being Jewish was to be as godly as possible. Well, the thing is that when we're justified not by our works but by faith, God can justify the wicked. I love this quote by a guy called R. Kent Hughes talking about um, the doctrine of justification by faith. He says, Sola fide, that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, offends our natural sensibilities. We naturally think that justification ought ought to go to the good, those who are trying to do their best but not to the ungodly. We can understand how Abraham was justified by faith because he was a God fearer, but the wicked? The wicked? The truth of the matter is that we are all ungodly and wicked. Salvation will be by faith alone or it simply will not be. The reason that Romans 2 and 3, what we've read over the last couple of weeks, sits so heavy on us, is because it's true. If we're saved by works, we're stuffed. It's game over. We're saved by faith alone. Abraham was saved by faith alone and God credited it to him as righteousness, that he did not own. It was not his righteousness, but a gifted righteousness. And then Paul brings his second witness, King David. It says in verse 6, David says the same things when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Quoting Psalm 32, he says, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not count against him. If you're going to bring two witnesses to the stands, you want to bring the father of the faith, Abraham, godly, godly Abraham, and you want to bring King David. He is the best king that Israel has ever had. He's a good, strong man. We know from the scriptures that he's a man after God's own heart, but David has a small problem. And David has a sin problem. See, David was a man after God's own heart, and he was a good king, but he also lusted after Bathsheba, and he also slept with Bathsheba. And then after sleeping with Bathsheba, he had her husband murdered on the battlefield to get rid of him. See, under the sacrificial system that Israel had at the time, there was no reconciliation or redemption on offer for those who had such premeditated sin. There was no sacrificial elephant that they could give over saying, well, the goat's not big enough, the sheep's not big enough, let me grab the biggest animal that I can, hopefully that will appease God. There was nothing. David had no hope in the law. His actions left nothing left. And yet what do we find in Psalm 32? He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit there is no deceit. How could he say that? But what means is he being made right with God? He's murdered Uriah. He's slept with Bathsheba. That's only the, the, the start of his sins. He's terrible in so many different ways. How was he made right? Did he work extra hard? Did he make sure that he did all his kingly duties to the best of his ability? Did he make sure that he was reading the, the scriptures as much as he could to earn God's favor? Well, Psalm 32 answers for us in verse 5 and 6. He just says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while they may be found, while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. It was not by works that David was forgiven. It was not like he somehow got halfway to being forgiven by God. He laid himself up before God and did not cover his iniquity, did not cover his sin before God, and God forgave him. It was not through circumcision. It was not through the law. It was not through works. It was by grace. It was by trusting God 
again and again and again. And this has been the theme from the beginning. I hope you're starting to pick up this repetitive theme that Abraham was not justified by works but by grace. And David was not justified by works but by grace. And then we move on to the great sign and the seal of the Israel nation, the Israelites. In verse 9 it says, Is this blessedness? Only for the circumcised, the blessedness of knowing the forgiveness of God and whose sins are covered? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, but under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after, was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, whilst he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So he anticipates this argument that's coming. Well, if it's not works, then it has to be circumcision. Circumcision is the big sign that God's people are in union with God, that carves out, marks out Israel as a nation that's different from God. Trust me, circumcision is not the kind of thing that you want to go through lightly. It's the kind of thing that you go through if you think that's what I need to do to be made right with God. And yet Paul says, it's not about that. Why? Because God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness in Genesis 15, and yet it's only in Genesis 17, somewhere between 14 to 29 years later, that he institutes circumcision. So for potentially up to 29 years, Abraham lived as a righteous man whose faith was counted as righteous, who had been saved by grace through faith, without the mark of circumcision. So what comes first, circumcision or faith? Always faith. Faith is the marker of someone who's been united with God. Faith is the marker of God's people. Faith is the mark, not circumcision. Circumcision is just a sign and a seal in much the same way that we have baptism today. And we love baptism. We love celebrating baptisms. We love seeing people come to faith in Jesus, but the truth is that baptism is only a sign and a seal. It is not saving at all. You could be baptized once or twice or thrice. You could be baptized as an infant or as an adult, but if you do not trust in Jesus to justify you through faith, then there's no baptism that can wash the stain of your sin off you. It's only Christ and the stream of everlasting life that he provides that wash us white as snow. It's not baptism that saves. It's not circumcision that saves. It's faith. Now we love baptism because it's a sign of what God is doing in us. It's a sign that through faith he has cleansed us. It's a sign that through faith he has made us one with him. That through uh, he has adopted us into his family. That we are part of um, his. That we are his. But we don't hold it as fire insurance. We don't get baptized in the hope that when I meet God, then one day my baptism might be the thing that gets me over the line. We celebrate baptism because we know that Jesus is well over the line and we are in him. And so verse 13 goes on. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, then faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. So what's, what's Paul getting up to? Well, they would have gone through. Well, if it's not works that save us and it's not circumcision that save us, well, then maybe it's the law. Maybe it's the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, everything that God had handed down to us about how to live, how to be an Israelite, how to be a Jew, how to operate as God's people. Maybe that's what saves us. Paul just says it can't be. He says it much clearer in, in other places. So he says this in Galatians uh, chapter 3. I skipped well ahead of where I am on my slides. The, the promise was spoken to Abraham. This is Galatians 3, 16, 17. The promise was spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And this is the key bit. What I mean is this. 
The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. There is 430 years between Abraham being counted as righteous and the law of Moses being introduced. And it's not the kind of thing where they look back and go, well, this is what Abraham did and I guess he fits the picture, so that's what we're going to do. No, this is something divinely given by God to guide and instruct Israel and it's not something that Abraham like, perfectly did before the law even came, like some of the Jews suggested. But he's saying that Abraham was considered righteous by faith before the law was ever a thing, before he was ever, ever able to perform the law. So if he was not able to perform the law, then Abraham could not have been saved by the law. He must have been saved by faith, like the Bible actually says. From the first beginning, God's people have always been saved by faith. Not by works, not by circumcision, and not by the law. Always by grace through faith. And now we get into the best bit, my favorite bit of Romans chapter 4. So I encourage you, grab your Bibles and gather them as closely to your noses as humanly possible so you can get the rich aroma from this. This is so deep. I'm going to read it out slowly to 23 because there's so much here for us. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our Father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. My goodness. There's two lines that I want us to absolutely understand and grab from Romans 4, this pit. Verse 17, Abraham believed God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they are. Verse 20, 21, Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, so good, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Abraham had every reason there is to doubt that God was going to be faithful to his promise. God, how are you going to make this nation? How are you going to have children as numerous as the stars? How are you going to make me a nation that will bless others and give me great land? Because Abraham would have been watching his birthdays roll past. Well, God, I'm now 89, now I'm 91, now I'm 93, now I'm 95, now I'm 97. I'm almost 100, God, and I'm almost dead, and my wife is not far past. She's about 90 years old and her womb is barren. How on earth are we going to have kids? The only one left is this Eleazar guy who's a servant I have. How are you going to fulfill your promises, God? How are you going to keep your promises? And yet what does it say? Abraham believed God. Why did he believe God? Because he raises the dead to life. He brings into reality things that were not, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do everything he had promised. I love what it says about God. God is the one who brings the dead to life and calls things, calls out things that are not as though they were. The Bible calls this ex nihilo. It's how God created the world. There was nothing and then there was something. It's not like us. When we create something, there is a chain. We can quite clearly see that I can make uh, paper from trees. But God calls things that were even though they we're not. So where does this lead us? How do we have the same 
faith that Abraham did. Well, we consider all the promises that are true for us in Jesus. See, God is a God of promises. He has promised many things and He's faithful to every single one of them. In the first chapters of Genesis, we see that God made a promise to Adam and Eve that He would send His Son as the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And in Christ Jesus, He did it. He fulfilled His promise. And we see in Abraham that He has promised Abraham land and kids and a nation and to be a great blessing. And the reason that you stand here today is because in some senses you are the true Israel. You have been grafted into the vine through faith. Abraham is our father. So not only has Abraham had his Jewish nation, there are not only hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people around the world, not only thousands, not only millions, but billions of people who Abraham can now say, these are my children through faith faith and so he can look saying God has not only fulfilled every promise this man who is almost dead and a wife that has a womb that's barren and yet he is holding firm to his promises because he knows that God has the power and we are living in the evidence of that we can see that in King David God had promised that there would be a great king that would come to set his people free that would reunite God to his people and through Christ Jesus we have the great king That's why the Bible says that in Christ Jesus, every promise of God is yes. Because in Christ Jesus, God fulfills all of his promises. Abraham looked forward knowing who God was and trusted that he would be able to do everything he had promised. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. What does it say for us? The words that was credited to him in verse 23 were written not for him alone, but also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness. How? How will we credit righteousness? Will it be through circumcision? Will it be through the law? Will it be through our works? No, it will be through us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. How are we saved? It is not through our actions. It is not through our works. It is through justification. Jesus Christ was delivered over to death so that we would have not only eternal life but no need of ever working for the favour of God again. We are God's people. We have been adopted into the family. We have become children of righteousness, children of light. We have been called into the kingdom of God. And was it through our work? No. Was it through our agency? No. Was it through things that we had done or through the praise that we had brought Him? No. It was through faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And the great truth of Romans 4 is that either we are justified by faith in Him or not justified at all. See, Romans 2 and 3 brings us a great conundrum. All are sinful and fallen short of the glory of God. How must we be saved? Well, if we look to the world religions, we know that it'll be a lot of work, and work that we will not live up to. I don't know about you, but um, I fall short all the time. You can just ask my wife. I fall short. So if I'm signing up to an eightfold path of enlightenment or I'm, I'm signing up to the five pillars that are going to get me right with God, I'm going to fail and I'm going to spend eternity separated from God. And if I'm signing up to Tony D'Amato's status, right, that I'm going to fight for every inch, well, I'm not a winner. Right? I don't have that within me, so I'm going to lose. And Romans 2 and 3 says that everyone loses because everyone is sinful and all fall short of the glory of God. And so what do we do? We trust Jesus. But my prayer and my hope is that as we read this, we're not just applying this and gathering up knowledge in our head. Yes, great, I'm saved by grace through faith. Okay, I've learned a word, new word, justification. I'm, I'm saved by justification through faith. I pray that it would hit our hearts because there are so many people who sit in our churches week by week who know that we are saved by grace through faith and yet do not believe it in their hearts and do not live lives marked as if that is a true reality. And so we have a week where we may fall short, where we sin, where we really don't meet the mark. And so we come to God in prayer. Or maybe we don't come to God at all because we're so ashamed that we haven't met the mark that God, how could God possibly love me? Or we come to church on a Sunday and shackles are on us as we worship. And we don't want to sing because if God would only know the barriers that lie between us because of my sinfulness, because of my wretchedness, because of my wickedness. And the Bible says God justifies the wicked. God justifies 
is sinful. He knows everything already. There is no secrets to God when we come to worship. And God says, I know it already. You don't need to clean your life up to come to God. God cleans you through faith. It's not our works that do it. It's our faith in Him. And this has dramatic differences. It has dramatic differences for our prayer lives because we come to God, we're not praying in anxiety-riddled states, hoping that our prayers will meet the mark, that we're not coming to God again and again and again, hoping to clean ourselves up or we're removing ourselves from God's presence, that we're not praying, we're not reading the Scriptures, right? Because we're worried that we'll be hypocritical, that we won't actually meet what we're trying to be. Well, God says you are hypocritical and that's why I sent my son to die for you and be Through his death, his blood has washed you clean so that you can come into a state where there is no separation for you even when you fall short. And it means that when we come into church, we acknowledge through word and through voice and as a community that we don't meet the mark and yet Jesus has met the mark and so we can sing loudly and boldly and proudly, not through pride in ourselves but through pride in Christ who has died and justifies us, not just once or twice but in eternity. For those who are justified by faith, there is no longer a moment where we become unjustified or ungodly or wicked again, even if we fall short, for God justifies us in eternity. And I have these chats with my friends. I might um, try to talk to them about Jesus, and I might ask them a question, something like, um, well, if you were to die and to meet God, and he asked you a question like, why, why would I let you into my kingdom? Like, why would I let you into heaven, into union with me, into being my people? What would you say? And uh, some of my non-Christian friends, it's, it's interesting their answers, but I, 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 I can sort of understand them. They say, well, you know, I think things will all work out in the end. I'm a pretty good person. I give to charity. I make sure I don't start too many Facebook comment wars, right? I don't watch dodgy videos. I don't um, download too many torrents, right? I, I work hard. I volunteer. I'm kind. I'm nice. I make sure that the scales balance out, and that's fairly predictable. But the interesting thing is that I talk to my Christian friends and I ask them the same thing and I think there are many of us who feel like this, that if we're asked what is it that guarantees our entrance into the kingdom of God, well we might say well there was a time where I prayed a prayer down at that youth camp a couple of years ago or I got baptised a couple of years ago or I preached the gospel a couple of years ago or I've evangelised many, many people and brought them into the kingdom of God or I've sang the, the, the chorus and the bridge to ocean 17 times and I felt something in the 16th time so that's what guaranteed me entrance to God and God says no those things aren't what justify us stop the activity stop the the anxiety riddled stuff that we do and rest in me it is not our good deeds that justify us it is not our prayers that justify us it is not oceans that justify us and it's not our evangelism that justify us there is nothing a Christian can do that saves them apart from trusting in Jesus. There is nothing a non-Christian can do that earns favour with God, that earns union with God, apart from trusting in Jesus. And I hope you get the rhythm. We don't trust in works. We don't trust in being a good person. We don't trust in any of these things, but we are fully persuaded that God has the power to do what He promised. What did He promise? To redeem us from our sin, to bring us out of the muck, and He has in Jesus, and so we trust Him. So my prayer would be this morning, this afternoon, that we would not only know that we are deeply saved by grace through faith, that we are justified through Jesus, but that our hearts would know it too. So that when we approach God, we can approach Him boldly in our sin, being like David, I will not cover up my iniquity before you. Why? Because blessed is the man who knows that God has not counted his sins against him. I pray that if you're not yet a Christian, if you don't know Jesus, if you're on that journey towards Him, that Romans 2 and 3 would hit you, that you would be struggling in the depths of your sin and your understanding of how that changes God, but that you would not look to your good works to save you, but that you would look to Jesus, that on your knees you would discover the depths of your wickedness, but also that God justifies the wicked. 
works, not our good works, not our behavior, not our actions, not by meeting some moral, ethical standard, but through grace and grace alone to the glory of God. So I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to pray uh, corporately for us and then a prayer that was prayed by uh, St. Clement of Rome about a hundred years after the birth of Jesus. So this is super close to um, the early church. He actually studied under some of the apostles. I'm just going to pray it for us because I think it's so rich. But if you want to bow your heads with me, let's pray. Father, Father, I pray that we would know the depths of the riches of grace. That we would not be a church marked by anxious, anxiety-riddled activity in the hope that we might earn one-eighth of a favor with you. That you might look kindly upon us, that you might love us more, but instead we would be a church that is marked not only with a head knowledge but a heart knowledge that we are saved by grace through faith and therefore we can come and rest in you, that we are justified in eternity by you. It is not our works, not our actions, not our deeds, but through everything that Jesus has done, we trust in him. Father, I pray for my Christian brothers and sisters this morning. I pray that you would convict them of their need to stop earning your approval. That you would convict them of their need to stop earning your favor. Not that they stop the effort, but they stop the earning. We cannot earn it. It is a gift. And I pray we know the depths of your gifts. And Father, I pray for my non-Christian friends who are here this morning, that they would hear of the depths of grace available in Jesus and they would run with everything they have and plunge themselves in his vast, vast ocean of forgiveness. Father, I pray that your Spirit does great work this morning. That people aren't moved by by my words, but through your word that does not return to us void. That they would not be moved by passion and Uh, public speaking, but they would be moved by the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would discover, as Abram did, and David did, and Paul did, that we have faith in a God who raises the dead to life. And we are fully persuaded that you are powerful and good and will guarantee and secure all all of your promises. And so we pray the early church father, St. Clement of Rome. We pray that we, who have been called into Christ, who have been called into Jesus, are not justified by ourselves or our own wisdom or our understanding or our godliness, nor by such deeds that we have done in the holiness of our hearts, but that we would know that the faith through which Almighty God has justified all men since the beginning of time in Christ Jesus. I pray that we know this, and glory be to him forever and ever. Amen.